Well, if you're a guest with us or just jumping in with us, we are in a preaching series where we've been working through the book of Colossians or the letter to the Colossians. It's written by a man named Paul who was an apostle or a messenger of Jesus Christ. And he's writing to a young, small church just like this one here at Sabma Road. And by and large, this is a very healthy and spiritually vibrant church that a lot of things are going right and things are going well. And yet, Paul writes this letter because though there are many things to applaud and be encouraged by, there is a a small thing that concerns Paul. And it's the sort of thing that it's small now, but if it's left unaddressed or untended to or not corrected, it can grow into a massive, huge thing. Uh, Sort of like how people talk about how, you know, if you're off by just a degree, the difference it can make over time. Right? When, when people talk about travel, they say, you know, if you're just off by a degree, a plane takes off from the other side of the world and is headed for D.C., just a degree, and a degree is so small, only so insignificant, and yet a degree off, that plane, rather than landing in D.C., would land in Boston, right? Or, or if you sent a spaceship out to the moon, uh, just being off a degree, scientists tell us, would have you landing 4,000 miles away from where you were meant to go. And that's the same sort of thing that threatens the Colossians. That there's so much there that there's right and good. So much to be encouraged by. Their faith in God. Their love for all the saints. Their hope in heaven. And yet, they live in a day, in a world, in a culture that is hostile towards everything that they believe. That thinks everything they believe is laughable. And that hostility and what they're hearing from within and from without is, is sort of tempting them to go one degree away. And so Paul, this sort of spiritual grandfather to this church, is concerned for them. And you hear that concern in 2 verses 4. In Colossians 2 verse 4, he says, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Right? So what Paul's saying is, what I'm saying in this section, this passage that we're going to look at today, chapter 2 verses 1 through 5, he's saying, I'm saying this stuff to you so that no one may delude or deceive you or trip you up or seduce you with plausible arguments. And you pay attention to that word too, plausible arguments, as in things that sound like they make sense, as in things that are just off by a degree, just off by a hair. Uh, as in the things that you almost might want to believe, those are the things that can deceive you, can delude you, can trip you up. You see, Paul's aware, the Bible tells us, that the reality is there is an enemy of God who hates us and hates Jesus' church and wants so badly to trip it up. And, And it's more likely, I'd imagine, that the enemy knows he could do that by steering us off one degree than a million degrees. Because a million degrees or one degree, you still end up 4,000 miles off course. And so Paul knows that plausible arguments are being spoken all around the Colossians. And, and the goal of the enemy is to get this church off course. Right? And so you, you'd imagine that, that the enemy could have a church stop worshiping Jesus and join a cult that worships Satan. But what's probably more likely is just to get people convinced that, you know, the way that God works is... He accepts those who are good and rejects those who are bad. That's that's a lot more likely for you to believe. That one hair, one degree off is sort of a a, a thing that you might actually find plausible. That, in fact, the way that all the religions and worldviews of the world work is God accepts those who are good and rejects those who are bad. That's a plausible argument. And Paul's saying, I'm saying these things to you 
so that you might not find yourself one degree away from the gospel and over time find yourself 4,000 miles off course. See, what the Colossians are being told is Jesus is good. Jesus is really important. Jesus is great. In fact, Jesus is an incarnation of God. But if you want to be really spiritual and full and complete and really mature, you need Jesus plus whatever. Add this one more thing. Pray this one more prayer. Believe this one more thing. And, and you see how that's just a hair off? Just one degree away. And Paul's saying, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not be deluded, deceived by plausible arguments. See, Paul sees that this young church sort of has a bullseye on its forehead. That it has a real enemy that would love to trip it up. And so Paul is concerned. And you see that concern at the start of this chapter. 2 verse 1, here's what he says. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who I have not seen me face to face. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all who have not seen me face to face. Now, here's what Paul's saying. In the verses we looked at last week, in chapter 1, beginning at verse 24 and going down, Paul starts talking about his ministry and what he would do for the sake of the gospel, the good news, of getting out the message that Jesus Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again and we could be in him reconciled back to God. There's nothing Paul wouldn't do to get that message out. In fact, in verse 24, he says, I fill up in my flesh the afflictions that are lacking in Christ Jesus. Meaning, I'll do anything, no matter what it costs me or my body, to bring the gospel physically to the people Jesus Christ died for. And then last week, in verse 28 and 29, we heard Paul say, look, for this, and, and that this is to present people mature in Christ. For the goal of presenting the people God has entrusted me to him mature, complete, lacking nothing in Christ on the last day, I toil and I struggle, I strive. You get the sense that there's nothing Paul wouldn't do for the people that God has put in his path. Now the question then is, what about the Colossians? Because they've never come across Paul's path. Right? Paul's never seen them. There's nothing Paul wouldn't do for those that God has entrusted to him. And so sort of the question is, well, what about the Colossians? Because they've never seen Paul. If you remember when we started this series, you remember that we said that Paul is sort of a grandfather to this place. Meaning this was one of the churches that wasn't planted by Paul. It was planted by a, name, a man named Epaphras. Epaphras planted the church at Colossae and a nearby church at Laodicea and a nearby church at Hierapolis. He planted these three churches. And Paul has never seen these people face to face. And yet, in 2 verse 1, Paul wants them to know, nevertheless, my spiritual concern for you is no less just because I haven't seen you face to face. Right? I am still concerned for your spiritual well-being. In fact, I want you to know I have a great struggle for you. Did you see that in 2 verse 1? For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all those who have not seen me face to face. Paul wants this church to know, though we haven't met personally, I have a great struggle. We saw that, verse, that word uh, struggle in verse 29 last week. And if you remember, we said it's the word from which we get the idea agony or agonize. And Paul here is saying, look, I want you to know what great agony I have for you. How I agonize over your spiritual well-being. Now, if you're thinking through that, at least one of the questions that comes up for me is, 
How does Paul agonize in ministry for a people he hasn't met? It'd be one thing for Epaphras to say, I'm agonizing for you. I, I planted this church. I preached the gospel. I sat with you. I met in your homes. How is Paul sitting in a jail cell hundreds of miles away telling this people, I want you to know what a great struggle I have for you. What toil I'm toiling for you. What striving I'm striving for you. What a struggle and agony I have for you. Right? How, how can a Christian who's never seen this person face to face struggle for them, agonize over them? Right? He's not going to come over to the house or invite you over to his house. You're not meeting with him for coffee. He's not, he's not coming to you when, when someone gets sick or walking with you through counseling or leading you in a Bible study. He's not doing any of those things. So in what sense is Paul agonizing for this people that he's never met, never seen face to face? Now, I think there's a number of things that that could mean, and, and there's things that are pointed to. For example, just the fact that he's sitting in a prison cell. Right? He, he, he's laboring to bring the gospel to people who don't know it. But I, I think what Paul has in mind here particularly is that the way that Paul is struggling for the Colossians is through the hard, disciplined, diligent, consistent, constant work of praying for them. Right? That, that what he's doing in his hard labor for a people he's never met is the hard, disciplined, diligent, consistent, constant work of praying for them, of interceding for them, of bringing them regularly before God in prayer. I think we get a clue of this in two chapters from now. In chapter 4, Paul is going to tell, as he closes up his letter, all the different people that greet the Colossians. And he says, I want you to bring greetings to you from Epaphras, one of the people you do know. And listen to 4 verse 12. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, and what's the word? Struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Right? I, I want to let you know that Epaphras, who you know, he's one of the servants of Christ, he greets you, and I can testify to the fact that he's doing what? He's always struggling for you. And how? In his prayers that you may stand mature in Christ. Right? So Paul's saying, look, I want you to know that Epaphras toils and agonizes over you in prayer. And I think if we get this, it's quite amazing. If you put this together with what we said last week, last week we said that the aim of gospel ministry is to present people mature in Christ on the last day. Right? That's the aim of gospel reason, ministry. For this I toil and strive, working with all His energy, powerfully at work in me. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone, that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So that's the aim, is to present everyone mature in Christ. But Paul is miles away from these people. He can't proclaim Him to them, and he can't warn them and teach them directly, at least in person, and yet he's still committed, Epaphras is still committed to presenting these people mature. And how are they going to do that? By laboring in prayer for them. I think that's an amazing thought. That one of the means by which they hope to present everyone mature in Christ is to toil and to struggle and to agonize over these people in the diligent, disciplined, consistent, constant work of prayer. It's as if Paul's saying, look, my aim is to present you on the last day mature in Christ. But I'm in a jail cell miles and miles away. But I'm still going to get at that work by 
agonizing over you in prayer, by laboring over you in intercession. I'm going to seek to secure all of God's blessings and His work by the Spirit of making you look more like Jesus, and I'm going to do that by consistently, constantly, diligently praying for you. Somebody wrote, if you let that sink in for a second, isn't Paul struggling in prayer for people he's never even seen face to face? Such an example for us, such an encouragement for us. Isn't it so wonderfully applicable for us? For example, I think of this church, and I know many of you have partnered with Bombay Teen Challenge, a ministry that we sent two of our folks as missionaries and their families over to work in the red light district and, and set those who are caught in the trafficking industry and sex slavery and set them free. And some of you have partnered with that and given financially to that and, and, and you've held fundraisers and you've done all kinds of work. But by and large, most of us have never even seen those people. We've never seen them face to face. And there's a good chance for many of us, we will never meet them personally. We'll never see them at all. And yet there's a concern in our heart for us. And wouldn't it be an incredible thing for us to get that Paul is saying, though we're miles away, you can labor over those people through prayer so that they might be presented mature in Christ in the last day. You're not there. You're not on the ground. You're not in the rage. You're not rehabilitating them. You're not daily discipling them. You're not giving them Bible studies. You're not going to preach to them. But the thought that sitting here thousands of miles away, you might agonize and labor and wrestle in the disciplined, diligent, hard, consistent work of praying that they might stand mature in the last day. Isn't it a wonderful thought if we thought about not halfway around the world, but our own city? And you think of God has entrusted to us, Seven Mile Road and all the churches that preach the Bible here, the responsibility of bringing about the kingdom of God to this city. And so you think there are churches preaching the gospel and people all around here that you and I will never meet face to face. And yet Paul would have had a burden that they too would stand mature in the last day and, and would have interceded. So the thought that, I mean, Calvary Chapel Church is a, a few miles from here. From what I hear, 8,000 to 12,000 people meet there every week. People you and I will never meet, will never see face to face. And yet the thought that we could labor and toil, that they would stand mature in Christ. Or the thought that there's real life church in Bridesburg. Or Grace City Church across the boulevard on the other side. Or, or there's Liberty Churches. Or there's Epiphany in North Philly and Epiphany in Camden. And, and these churches that we're connected to and, and preach the gospel. Or, or churches across the country. Or, or think through even the thought of believers on the other side of the planet. You, you hear of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith and losing their life and their limbs. Uh, and, and you think that God would actually have you participate in toiling, in struggling, in laboring through prayer. I love here, by the way, that Paul describes this as labor, as struggling, as hard, as difficult, because that's exactly what it is. You know how I know that's, that's what it is? Because... At most, because we're talking about this today, you might pray fervently today and maybe till tomorrow. But in two weeks, it will prove itself to be what it is, a struggle. 
to be disciplined and diligent and consistent and constant in bringing before God people in the hard work of seeing them mature in Christ. I can tell you, prayer is hard, difficult work. I, I preach. Preaching is hard. And I can tell you, prayer is infinitely harder. Harder. Harder than any other ministry that I know that I've ever tried. I remember hearing a preacher say, you know, preaching is hard. And he said, you know, I've had sermons that go well and sermons that fall flat and are a total bomb just from the second they go out. And yet, no matter how bad preaching can get, I've never been 10 minutes into a sermon and forgot what I was doing. Right? But what about prayer? I mean, prayer could be you sit on your knees for five minutes and then you forget, why am I kneeling? Am I looking for change? Why did I get down here? Right? Because the thought, I mean, the, how hard, how hard is it, brother or sister, to labor in an hour of prayer? I mean, you could almost do anything for an hour that would be easier than praying for an hour. How hard is it, brother and sister, to labor for half an hour in prayer? How hard is it, brother and sister, to labor in 10 minutes in prayer? How hard is it, brother and sister, with me, to labor for five minutes in disciplined, diligent, consistent, constant prayer? So I love that the Bible tells you in Romans, Paul will say, join me in striving. Striving how? By praying. Right? That, that the Bible doesn't hide. This is hard and arduous and difficult and, 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 and all the things that you fight in trying to pray. There's the distractions. I mean, you're, you're standing in the presence of Almighty God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. You're in the happy land of the Trinity, as the Puritans used to say. You're in that world, and a fly goes by, and you're done. And, and, and your thoughts are over. So there's distraction to fight. And then there's skepticism and cynicism. I don't know about you, but for me, there's the hard work of even fighting. You're really telling me, me kneeling by my bedside is going to affect something in Bombay? That's really how it works? You're telling me me kneeling by my bedside is really going to have an impact on the city of Philadelphia? Us bowing our heads is actually going to do something this summer on violence in the city? You feel the skepticism, the cynicism that you've got to fight in the hard work of prayer? of saying, this is of effect. And, and yet, if you and I could get this, the Apostle Paul is inviting us into a ministry available to anyone who would take God at His word and say, you could labor with God to the ends of the earth in bringing about people mature in Christ if you would struggle as Paul does in prayer. It's a wonderful thought. So I, I think an immediate application for us, a thought for us is, do you, brother, do you, sister, who know the Lord, struggle, agonize, wrestle to see people mature in Christ in prayer? Dear GCM leader in our smaller communities, do you labor over your people in consistent, diligent, disciplined prayer? Dear soul care leader in our smaller groups of men and women, as you seek to see them, what? Mature in Christ. Dear Sunday school teacher, dear mom, dear dad, dear neighbor, dear co-worker, this is not for a guilt trip. In fact, one of the most encouraging things is some of you do labor in prayer. It's an example to me 
often as I think of some of you and how you pray. But it's, it's for all of us an invitation to get swept up into what God is doing, what He's been doing even through His apostles, which is this, I'm a thousand miles away from you, sitting in a prison cell. But I'm part of the game also in which you are going to finally stand mature in Christ. What a thought that would be, that on the last day, there's going to be some woman rescued from a brothel in Bombay, and she's going to stand gleaming and glorious and holy and mature in Christ, flawless and magnificent, and your bedside prayer is going to be a part of that. That's what you're being invited into. So Paul says, I I want you to know I'm struggling for you. How great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and all those who have not seen me face to face. And Paul goes on to tell us exactly what he's struggling for. What is it that he wants for this people? That's what he says in verse 2 and 3. Look at that. He says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is one of Paul's long sentences where he says 5,000 things, and you've got to rip them apart and go, what on earth is he talking about? And I, and I labored over trying to understand it. I, I think some of what he's saying is, here's what I want for you in this long sentence. Here's what I'm laboring for and toiling for and struggling for, and here's what I want so much for you. For one, I want that your hearts would be encouraged. You see that? that their hearts may be encouraged. Now, it'd be helpful to know when we think of heart, we immediately think of a Valentine's Day card. We think of sort of our emotions and our feelings. And, and you sort of make this, what Paul wants is for you to feel good in your emotions and your heart. Now, it's more than that. You see, I, I didn't know this, but this week I learned that when the Bible talks about sort of your feelings and emotions, it actually connects it to a different organ. It talks about your stomach. In the Bible's understanding, your feelings sort of come from your gut, right? That's the center of your feelings. When the Bible talks about heart, it's sort of talking about the center of who you are, the core of your being, the the place of thoughts and will and decision, your entire person and personality. And so Paul is saying, what I want for you, what I'm laboring for you, is that you would be encouraged, and that word also means strengthened, that you'd be strengthened in your inner person at the very heart of who you are, at the very core of who you are, wave after wave of attack, though they may come, Colossae, by the culture around you, by false teachers, by heretics that would want to get you one degree away from the gospel, 4,000 miles away, though that may all come, I want so much for you to be strengthened and strong in your inner being. Young church, though you may not see it, bullets are whizzing by your head. There's a bullseye over and about you. And constantly there is a war being waged for your soul. And in that, what I want for you is for you to be strengthened in your inner man, encouraged in your heart. And he says, and part of how that happens is what he says next, being knit together in love. Right? What I want for you is that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That is that you weren't meant to fight for strong faith alone. You weren't meant to withstand wave after wave after wave of attack on your faith by yourself. But rather you were to be knit together. Sort of the idea that you and I are all loose strands by ourselves. And and yet if you knit those strands together, now they form a quilt that can't be torn. 
And so as wave after wave of attack comes, hostility comes towards your faith, seeking to get you one degree off, I want you to know, if you're a loose strand, you're going to be blown away. But that's why I'm hoping and praying that you'd be knit together in love, like a quilt that can't then be torn. The picture that comes in my mind is, is sort of, if you remember some of those images or old black and white f- photographs you've seen of the men and women who walked in the civil rights movement and those demonstrations. You remember those images, Martin Luther King Jr. at the front? Sort of, this year marks the 50th anniversary of Selma. They made a movie about it. And and sort of this heroic walk over a bridge, a bridge named after a man in the KKK. And there's, there's tear gas being thrown at them, and billy clubs coming after them, and dogs being unleashed at them. Wave after wave after wave of attack to get them off course, to get them down. And yet, what's the image that you've seen in those photographs? It's this army of people with arms locked together, stride by stride. Singing together, we shall overcome as they walk together, hand in hand, arms locked against whatever may come. And that at least is the picture that comes for me as Paul says, what I want for you, Colossae, small little church in this big city where all kinds of thoughts are around you. Bullets are swirling by your spiritual head. A bullseye on your back to get you away from Christ. What I want for you is that you would be locking arms with one another. Knit together in love. And thereby each one of you individually strengthened in faith or encouraged in your heart. And when that happens, he says, here's what will result. You will grow in your confidence and understanding of Christ. That's what Paul says next, that that you being encouraged in your heart and being knit together in love might grow together in your knowledge and understanding of Christ and might reach confidence, full assurance. Listen to what he says again, 2 and 3, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Colossae, young church, you have an enemy in a culture that is constantly going to try and poke holes in your faith and cause you to doubt. And what I'm laboring for, what I'm striving for, what I want for you, what I'm praying for you, is that God would give you this total assurance, this deep confidence, this settled conviction about Jesus. I want so much for you being knit together in love and encouraged in your heart for you to be then know and understand God's mystery, which is Christ, so that it it results in this full assurance, this deep conviction. I want for you, Colossae, that, that you wouldn't be like a cork in the ocean that's sort of bobbing by every tide that comes. And every new idea would have you sort of drifting about. But that rather, Colossae, you'd be anchored. That you're not going anywhere. You're not moving You've got this full assurance in Jesus Christ, this great confidence that is in Him. You're being told, Colossae, that you know, Jesus is a good start, but if you want to be really mature and complete and full, well, you can't be so narrow-minded. You think of our own day in our culture. You can't possibly think that it's just Jesus and ignore all the other wisdom and all the other paths. No, in all the other paths, you'll get a fuller understanding of God. Plausible argument. What I want for you, Colossi, is to know 
again what Paul's been trying to labor all letter long to get them to see, which is Jesus is fully sufficient. Right? That's what I want you to hear. Against all the waves of, that might come, what I want you to hear is that Jesus is sufficient. You have Jesus, and you don't need anything or anyone else. Hear me. Right? In the whole letter, that's what he's laboring. In chapter 1, he, he talked about Jesus being preeminent over and above all things. The image of the invisible God. That is that when you see Jesus, you're seeing God. In Him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossae, if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. You lack nothing. And here, he wants you to know, and not only that, but in Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So he, here he's saying, look, you're being told you need something besides Jesus for true spiritual insight and wisdom. But I'm telling you, you have Christ. And in Christ is hidden, and that word is sort of stored or deposited. In Christ is stored all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossi, everything you could possibly want to know about God, His ways, how to live in the world, it's all in the treasure chest of Jesus. You've already got that treasure chest. Why would you go anywhere else and look for anything else? You have Jesus, and if you have Jesus, you have everything you need. All the wisdom of God. In the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, wisdom was personified as this great treasure. You'd want it. You'd give everything to get it. And Paul is connecting the dots between Proverbs and Proverbs 2 and the treasures of the Old Testament and Jesus. And saying Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. All the wisdom and knowledge is in the treasure chest of Christ. And if you have Christ, you have everything, Colossae, that you could possibly need. So here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, what I am laboring for and struggling for and striving for and toiling for, why I'm in a prison cell, why I'm on my knees in that prison cell, in prayer for you, is that your heart might be encouraged. Your, your faith and your inner man might be strengthened. And that happens by you being knit together in love. And that in that place, you might understand Christ more. And, and see this full assurance and confidence that comes from Christ. And if that will be the case, then, Colossae, you won't drift by even a single degree. Then, verse 4, no one will be able to delude you with plausible arguments. Whatever might come, whatever new tide might come, you will use Jesus as the litmus test. Right? Every day a new thought will come as to what might be the way to think about all things. And Jesus will be your litmus test. And if it diverges from Jesus, you stay. You're not a cork. You're anchored in Christ. Listen then to how he ends in verse 5. Paul finishes this section by saying, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul says, listen, I'm, I'm miles away from you. I'm sitting in this prison cell. But I want you to know, though I'm absent from you in body, I'm with you in spirit. And that's sort of a mysterious thing, but I think what he's saying is, look, you're in Jesus, and I'm in Jesus, and we're one in Jesus, and one body in Jesus, and I'm with you there. I'm with you, Colossae. And what I want you to know is, Colossae, I am rejoicing over you. Would you just hear that last thing? I'm sitting in a prison cell. I have afflictions in my flesh. I'm toiling, I'm striving, I can hear the chains rattle on my wrist while I'm writing this letter to you. Everything that could go wrong has gone wrong. 
But Colossi, I have a smile from ear to ear when I think of your order and your firmness in faith. All the labor and all the toiling and all the striving is worth it when I know that you are in good order and firm in your faith in Jesus Christ. Commentators tell us this is the language of sort of military terms. And it'd be the idea of saying, I think of the bullets whizzing by your head and the attacks that are coming and the enemy that hates you, and yet I see that none of you have broken ranks. You haven't gone AWOL, but that you're standing there. You haven't given ground or lost ground. You are firm in Jesus Christ, and for that I rejoice. Oh, that makes all the pain of gospel ministry worth it if I can know you are firm in Christ. Samaro, that's what Paul wants for Colossae. And Samaro, that's what God wants for you. God wants for you, wherever you may be today, whatever shape your heart might be in, God wants for your heart to be encouraged. No matter how many bullet holes have gone through your faith, God wants you to be strengthened in your inner being. At the core of you, who you are. God this morning has given this word because he wants so badly for your faith to be strong. And he has not left you in that pursuit alone, but has brought you to this room so that you could be knit together in love. And so a thought for us would be, who is it here today that needs encouragement? If Paul is laboring for a people he has never seen face to face, who is it sitting around you that might need your encouragement? And another thought for you might be, am I a loose strand disconnected from anyone here? Because what he wants for me is being knit together in love. That's the place where my faith will grow. And so I want to think through my unity with one another. And in that place, we might come to a full assurance of who Christ is and what he's done and that everything we need is in him. And if that be in place, we wouldn't be deluded or deceived by plausible arguments, but rather we would be firm in our faith in Christ. That's what God wants for you. And that might even be what God wants you to pray for another. Let's pray together.